Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode 68 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr morford how are you today i'm doing good how about you i'm doing great man the weather is awesome i've been able to ride my harley lately um it's just a it's a great time of the year for me yeah my kids just started summer camp and they're having fun and everybody's happy in the house so that's always good yeah, so I I know you and I are at different stages a little bit in life, although we're, you know, pretty much the same age. I have a uh, a daughter that is getting ready to go to college and actually right now she's with my wife on a two-day orientation trip. So, you know, that, that's that's one of those things and I'm sure the audience uh, a lot of them have gone through it. It really makes me feel old, man, to have a child that is going to college. And for me, it's kind of weird because I'm the opposite. I've got all these friends that have kids going into college and I've got kids that are not even in kindergarten yet. So it's kind of, yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things. All right. We had some new Patreon support morph. So let's give some shout outs. We had Stephanie Lascult, Vanessa, true love, Jamie Holmes, Jessica loot, Neely Ferguson, no relation that I know of, Cassidy, and Simon Tanner. So amazing new support. You and I say it every week. We'll continue to say it. Uh, It makes a world of difference. Yeah, it's really great, and we can't thank people enough. And if anyone out there wants to help support the show on Patreon, they can by going to patreon.com slash criminology. So last week we talked about the unsolved murder of molly bish got a lot of great feedback on that morph i mean that is one of those cases up in the northeast that continues to haunt people yeah that's a case that gets a lot of attention on social media and in different forums and this last week being the 19th anniversary we wanted to cover that case and help bring it some more attention so hopefully we did yeah i think anytime you're talking about it you are bringing some attention there, not everybody knows about every case, right? So listeners that know about certain cases, some may not have known about the Molly Bish case. So just talking through the details and things like that, it's bringing awareness. I think you and I talked about it off the air, but this is one that we would really like to see solved and, and one that I think can be. Yeah, it's one of the cases that I hope to hear an update by maybe the 20th anniversary. It'd be great to see this case solved. All right, so that was last week. Let's get on to the subject of this episode. We're talking about the college co-ed mysteries, the murders of two female college students, and the suspicious death of another separated by some time and, and some distance. But 
all equally bizarre and mysterious. So we had 25-year-old Sigrid Stevenson was found dead in Kendall Hall at Trenton State College in 1977. 21-year-old Penn State student Dana Bailey was found dead in her State College, Pennsylvania apartment 10 years later. In between both of these deaths, 19-year-old Teresa Allure died under unexplained circumstances near her Quebec, Canada campus. So we know these three cases are definitely not related, but the death of each woman has left families struggling to find answers and investigators scratching their heads. So I, I think more if this is a situation and you know, as a true crime podcaster, right? You run into this from time to time. You find a very intriguing case that you want to talk about, but there's just not enough information out there to do, let's say, an hour episode. So that's the situation we have here. So we are actually grouping three fascinating stories into one episode. And I think sometimes it's very necessary because without that, some of these cases would probably never be told just because there's just not enough information out there to carry an entire episode on their own. The College of New Jersey was first established in 1855 by state legislature as New Jersey State Normal School. It was originally located on Clinton Street in Trenton. It was the first teacher training school in New Jersey and the ninth in the nation. In 1928, 210 acres of land in Ewing Township was purchased as a new site for the college. In 1947, the college graduate program was instituted. The college's name changed several times since the school's inception. From 1958 to 1996, it was called Trenton State College, and to this day, most people still refer to it as that. In the 1970s, enrollment declined. Other schools lowered standards to attract students, but Trenton State did the opposite and raised its already high standards. It paid off. Since then, the college, now known as the College of New Jersey, has increased enrollment steadily, and the college has become one of the most competitive schools of its kind in the country. In 1977, one student hitchhiked all the way from Livermore, California, to attend the college's graduate program. Her name was Sigrid Stevenson. Born on January 24th, 1952, Sigrid was a pretty blue-eyed girl, a bit of a free spirit who was always on the move. She was shy. She was also said to be a bit of a loner, but Sigrid was working on earning a master's degree in music. She wanted to become a teacher. Over the Labor Day weekend, 1977, many of the students at Trenton State College were away for the holiday weekend. Sigrid arrived back on campus early and didn't have a place to stay. Now, there are some conflicting reports as to where she had been staying over the summer. One report said she had been living with Stanley Austin, a supervisor of graduate music study at the college. But Austin and his family had not returned yet from summer break by the time Sigrid arrived back on campus. Another report said she rented a room from 
Trenton stage professor, Dr. Alan Lutz over the summer, but in August moved in with a volunteer fireman who served for Ewing Township. Sigurd was known to sneak into Kendall Hall to play the piano, something she loved to do. Calvin Kendall Hall was built in 1932 and named after Calvin N. Kendall, the Commissioner of Education of the State of New Jersey from 1911 to 1921. It's one of the college's original buildings and presently seats 836 people in its theater-style seating. With no place to stay, Sigurd entered Kendall Hall on September 4, 1977 to sleep and play piano. Around 11.30 p.m., campus police officer Thomas Cucatello was patrolling campus when he noticed a lone green bicycle chained to a bike rack near the side entrance. The building was supposed to be empty at that hour. The last people who used the building that night were the cast and crew of a production called J.B. Officer Cocatello decided to enter the building. He walked towards the main stage and noticed blood splattered across the wooden floor, with a bloody trail leading to the piano. There he found the nude, lifeless body of Sigrid Stevenson. She was lying face down and wrapped in a covering. Blood was spattered on the music sheets. Her wrists were bound, and her body was covered in blood. Sigrid's clothes and a wallet containing some cash and traveler's checks were found nearby. Mercer County Medical Examiner Dr. Rafat Ahmed performed the autopsy and determined that Sigrid had been beaten to death with a blunt object. Cause of death was a combination of a skull fracture, multiple wounds on her face and head, and loss of blood. Sigrid was beaten beyond recognition. The only way she was identified was by her hair. There was no evidence of rape or robbery, and the motive for her murder remains a mystery to this day. Police believe Sigrid was playing the piano at the time of her murder. A joint investigation began between Ewing Township Police and Campus Police. Investigators interviewed over 100 people, some of them twice, and issued numerous polygraph tests to students, staff, and even a few members of Campus Police. College officials gave the freshman class, 60% of whom were women, a sheet of paper listing 10 steps to secure living. Some of these included lock your door, even if you're only gone for a few minutes, and lock your door when sleeping or taking a nap. Students were also encouraged to walk in pairs. The college officials weren't taking any chances, and some female students there were scared. School officials passed out copies of an administrative report outlining the details of the murder up to that point. They had no plans at that time to increase security staff at the college, which was made up of 12 armed police officers and eight security guards. Meanwhile, students started moving in. The Dean of Students, Dr. Paddock, said that while there was no general feeling of fear at the college, a number of parents had called to find out if it was safe to send their children to school. And I just talked about it early in this episode, right? I have a girl, a daughter going off to college. I, you know, again, this is years ago. Today, I'm not calling the school and saying, hey, is it safe to send my daughter back to school? You know, obviously, I, I'm going to make that decision on my own. But I think anytime you have a murder of this type, Right in a in a small college town atmosphere, 
you're going to have a lot of not not just college students, but their parents extremely worried. Yeah, I think it's only natural for for parents to be scared in that situation. And if this happened today, there'd be so much media attention on it that it would be a national story probably. Two weeks later, state police divers searched nearby Lake Siva for the murder weapon, but found nothing. According to a December 20th, 1977 issue of the school paper, The Signal, stumped investigators had even sought the advice of University of Pennsylvania psychologist and quote-unquote noted psychic Sidney Porcelain of nearby Princeton. Sadly, police never found Sigrid's killer, and the case went cold. In 1996, the college's name changed once again to its present name, the College of New Jersey. The school seems to have forgotten Sigrid Stevenson. There are no plaques in her memory or scholarships in her name. In 2002, Scott Napolitano was a freshman at TCNJ when he heard about Sigrid's murder. He told a New Jersey news outlet in 2014, The first time I heard about it was around Halloween my freshman year. Napolitano by that time was a high school film teacher. And he said, you hear it three or four times and the stories don't match up. But going back to his senior year in college, he worked with a group on a senior thesis that involved creating a short film. And the subject that they picked for their short film was Sigrid's story. Napolitano dove into newspaper archives to learn more. And the group completed about a 20-minute short film, and they got a pretty decent response from folks on campus. But after he graduated, Scott couldn't stop thinking about the murder. And in 2006, he spoke with Ewing Township Police. Now, obviously, this is an unsolved murder. It's an ongoing investigation. They're not going to release and didn't release a lot of information to Scott, but they gave him enough to keep him moving forward, to keep him looking into this murder. He wanted to know more. He wanted Sigrid's case solved. So in 2014, he contacted the Vidoc Society. And, and this is something you and I have talked about before, Morph. This is a group of former and retired investigators, police officers who investigate cold cases. So essentially, Scott reached out to them to say, hey, will you take this case on? So this is a big step, right? The, the Vidoc Society, it, it's a big deal. They, they look into a lot of unsolved cases the problem is more if we can't figure out if they have taken this one on or not the information is just not out there yeah it'd be great if they did because this is like the dream team of investigators and they might have been help able to help move this case along since sigrid's murder rumors of a ghost roaming kendall hall circulated strange occurrences have been reported such as a paper towel floating from one side of a bathroom to another and into the garbage can as well as doors closing on their own and loud footsteps. A few years ago, a self-proclaimed psychic entered Kendall Hall and gave an account of what may have happened to Sigrid. So here is what this psychic claimed. Quote, when she was on stage, this guy was watching her for a little while. Either her back was turned while she was on the piano, or she was too involved with her music to notice. Again, this is what the psychic said. 
I think he was in uniform and had curly hair. He had something on his pants, something like keys. She knew him, but not well. He made an advance, but she fought back. He got angry, and when he got tough, she scratched and did something near his eye. That's when he got violent. He knew she was there that night, and the psychic went on to say this guy was sick, right? A borderline stalker. There was a place on stage where he could hide and watch her. He had made advances towards her in the past, but she had ignored him, had made small talk. But this night was different. After he killed her, he discarded his clothes in a dumpster behind a store nearby. The psychic also claims Cigarette is haunting Kendall Hall because she has yet to forgive her killer, who may still be alive. He didn't appear to be old, probably in his late 20s or 30s, so he'd be in his 50s or 60s today. I think he has health problems and may have moved far away. She has not forgiven this person. She isn't happy about how this case has gone at all. This man is not remorseful and thinks she got what she deserved. So I think you and I, more if we always say this, you know, take the psychic and ghost type discussion with a grain of salt. But all that aside, Sigrid's murder case truly is a creepy one. We may never know what really happened to Sigrid Stevenson when she was killed, but 42 years later, her killer is still out there somewhere with advances in DNA technology. Maybe there is hope that one day, and maybe one day very soon, Sigrid's case will be solved. Our next case takes us 200 miles northwest of Trenton, New Jersey, to the storied campus of Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania. On March 4, 1987, 21-year-old Penn State student Dana Bailey, a Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania native, had just returned from visiting her fiancé, Greg Greenberg, in Washington, D.C. The senior was majoring in health planning and administration. When she arrived at her apartment located only a block from the university, Dana told her roommate that she was tired and didn't want to go to work. Dana was employed at the Corner Room Restaurant located at 100 West College Avenue. Dana's mother, Shirley Bailey, called the restaurant that day on Dana's behalf and told them Dana would not be in that night. Around 5.30 p.m., Dana attended an exercise class at Lady Nautilus, located in the back of 323 East Beaver Avenue. The gym was only about six blocks from her off-campus apartment, which was above Crabtree Jewelers at 132 and a half South Allen Street. The exercise class ended at 6.30 and Dana went home. Around 8.30 p.m., she spoke with her fiancé on the phone. This was a pretty uneventful conversation. Dana's roommate had gone home to visit family, so Dana was completely alone. There were three other apartments on her floor, but they were all empty. At 3 p.m. on March 5th, Shirley Bailey went to visit Dana at her apartment. When Dana didn't answer the door, her mother let herself in. There was nothing that could have prepared Mrs. Bailey for the horrors awaiting her upon entering Dana's apartment. Shirley Bailey found Dana dead in what appeared to be a bloody crime scene. Dana was nude, her hands were tied, and she had been blindfolded. Some reports say that Dana was sprawled on the floor on top of some bedding, while others say that she was tied to a chair. I've seen a crime scene photo in Dana's case, and it's quite graphic. In the photo, 
Dana is clearly not in a chair and appears to be on some bedding lying on her back. The blindfold is covering one eye and one arm is tied in front of her, the other tied behind her, with rope traveling around her neck. Whatever the case, whether she was in a chair or not, her body was posed in a sexually suggestive way, almost as if it was on display. That would be important to police as their investigation continued. It was later determined that Dana had been stabbed six to seven times in the chest with a steak knife. The stab wounds were to her heart and lung area. Police investigators arrived at the scene and determined Dana had likely been killed in her bed. And then her body was moved and staged. And although there was a sexual aspect to this murder, tests to determine whether Dana was raped proved inconclusive. Police also discounted robbery as Dana's diamond engagement ring was found on her finger. Detectives took notice of the way Dana's body was displayed, and that her body was in perfect view of a rooftop location across the alleyway. It seemed possible that the killer displayed Dana's body and then admired his handiwork from across the way. There was an abandoned apartment undergoing renovations above Graham's newsstand, at 124 South Allen Street at the time. From this apartment, the killer could easily see into Dana's apartment because the buildings between them are not as tall. Closer examination on the roof of this building revealed footprints that match footprints found in Dana's apartment. So this is heating up, Morph, when you start to talk about footprints and this type of theories being put forth by police. The most likely scenario is that the killer watched Dana through her window from the abandoned apartment across the street for at least an hour. He waited for her to fall asleep, and once she did, he walked down a flight of stairs and across a roof, arriving at Dana's elevated kitchen window, possibly standing on something to reach it. The killer may have had a knife with him, because it appeared as if the window screen was cut. And after that, the killer climbed in through the window and armed himself with one of Dana's knives and attacked. Police found evidence that the steak knife used to kill Dana belonged to her. And one report said it was left in the bathroom sink. Because the police thought that the killer might return to the abandoned apartment across the way to watch Dana's apartment at some point after her murder, they didn't release details of their suspicion about that abandoned apartment. Instead, they staked out the apartment and installed an alarm inside of it. People were caught sneaking into the apartment and were checked out, but police were confident none of them were the killer. Prints and other evidence found in the abandoned apartment pointed to a man that was doing some of the renovation work, but police checked him out closely and concluded he wasn't Dana's killer. Dana's murder rocked the Penn State campus and the entire state college area. This kind of crime just didn't happen there. After all, the area around Penn State was commonly referred to as Happy Valley. It had been over five years since the last murder there and almost 20 years since one as shocking as Dana's murder, that being the 1969 murder of Penn State student Betsy Ardsma, who was found stabbed to death in the Penn State Library. In April 1987, police announced a $15,000 reward to anyone who could provide information leading to the conviction of Dana's killer. By 1989, 
the FBI created a profile of the killer that was shared by police. The profile predicted that the killer was a white male, 20 to 26 years old, who probably lived and worked in the area, and likely lived with an older family member. He would have likely enjoyed pornography and worked a menial job. The FBI profile also mentioned that Dana may have met her killer casually, and perhaps most troubling was that the profile stated that this killer would likely strike again. So, Morph, I've been fascinated with FBI profiling for a long time, right? I've read a lot of you know John Douglas's books, um, loved the show Mindhunter. I just think it's it's fascinating. But the one thing I will say, and sometimes I catch a lot of flack for this, is you look at some of the profiles that come out, and a lot of them are very similar, right? It's a white male probably lives in somebody's basement, 20 to 30 years old, works a menial job. You see that a lot. It's like the cookie cutter version of most true crime. I guess that's what I'm getting at. And there's probably a reason for that because those, (laughs) you know, white males between 20 something and 30 something, you know, who watch too much pornography and work a menial job are most likely to be killers, I guess. And whether or not this profile is on the money or not, I get a little bit of East Area Rapist vibe here with the stalking and the the careful way that this person entered her apartment and was hell-bent on, on attacking her. No, I think that's a, good, uh, that's a good thing to call out. You know, then the profile goes on to state that this killer would likely strike again. And I'm not discounting what these profilers do. I think it's amazing. I just feel like more if you could have come up with that. Hey, there's a good chance this guy's going to strike again. Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and I don't know what you think, but I think in this particular instance, they're right. Because I think this guy just seems very disturbed. And it wouldn't surprise me if he actually did strike again. No, no, I agree. I agree. But I, I just think a lot of times when you're looking at these types of cases especially the ones that we profile, do we really believe that most of these are one-offs and that a, a killer is going to kill one person and never strike again? It does happen, but I don't think that's the norm of the ones that we talk about. Yeah, I think if it's a case of a dispute or something, an argument that goes wrong and in the heat of the moment somebody kills somebody, that might be a case where it's a one-time thing, but in some of the cases we cover, you're right. It seems like there's a, a habit going on and uh, a pattern. Yeah, when you get into stalking and you know the this the type of things that this person went through, that to me does not say one-off. I'm going to do it once and never do it again. At least that that's that's my theory on that. Detectives looked at Dana's friends, her family. They looked at her fiance early on, which you know they they always have to do. They ruled them all out as being involved in her murder. People on campus started to suspect certain students of being responsible for Dana's murder. One Penn State student who was described as looking and acting odd was turned into police. Apparently he was creeping out female students. 
Police also dug into some of Dana's co-workers at the corner room. And I think you have this play out to uh, a lot as well, more, you know, one co-worker was suspicious of another one saying that this person had allegedly asked Dana out. Dana had rejected him. You know, I, I think you're going to have a lot of these things, right? In any situation, you're on campus. There are some people that, let's say, many of the females find strange. They're going to be pointing that person out to police. Yeah, I think if they're pointing out people that look and act kind of weird on college campuses, the police are going to be pretty busy because that probably encompasses a lot of people. That's actually that's actually pretty funny because today, I, I do believe you're right, especially today. Now, there was one worker at the corner room who supposedly took his own life sometime after Dana's murder and went as far as to mention her in his suicide note. But police looked into all of these people, right? All of these potential suspects and basically seem to come up empty. So they have no solid suspects, no real clear MO. This case threatened to go cold. And as does with many cases, that's exactly what happened. In February of 1989, as a two-year anniversary of Dana's murder approach, police became active talking with the media about Dana's case. They revealed that they had conducted more than 1,000 interviews and traveled to several states following up on leads. But the big reveal was that they had, quote, a DNA fingerprint of the killer. Remember, this is 1989 we're talking about, and most of the early DNA discussion related to crimes started to come in the early 90s. So this DNA evidence was in the very beginning of that technology. In March of 1989, at around the two-year anniversary of Dana's death, Dana's father received an anonymous letter signed, Concerned Officers. The letter accused a police officer of being responsible for Dana's murder. The officer named in the letter cooperated with detectives, and an investigation by the Attorney General's office revealed that the officer was not involved in the crime. Later in 1989, NBC's Unsolved Mysteries contacted the police about doing a segment on Dana's murder. However, police still had leads to follow up on, and so they declined the offer. A year later, the show contacted them again, and this time police agreed to talk to them. State College investigator Tom Jordan said that they sent a synopsis of the case to Unsolved Mysteries, but the show determined that Dana's case wasn't the kind of case they were looking for. And I, and I find that interesting. I think Unsolved Mysteries is a show that probably a lot of us watched back in the day for some of the younger people. It, it was probably one of those things that fueled their interest in true crime. I got the sense with Unsolved Mysteries, and, and maybe it was just more about the years that we're talking about, right? The time, the society that we lived in, that they tended to skirt or stay away from cases that involved a lot of um, sexual components. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think being a family-oriented show, they tended to shy away from that kind of stuff because it was just sort of taboo. Four years after Dana's murder, State College Bureau of Police Services had a new lead. Investigators announced that an anonymous tipster 
provided information about a possible suspect. This was someone that worked for a heating contractor at the time of the murder, would have been familiar with rooftops near Dana's apartment. The suspect was described as a five foot, 10 inch white male with curly dark hair, and he drove a gold or bronze Pontiac Trans Am with stripes. The details that came out about this man were very specific. Police were excited about the tip because the suspect lined up well with the FBI's profile from April 1987. The tipster didn't phone police directly because he was wanted by police at the time. Instead, he contacted a guest on a local television show called Getting Away with Murder. The show was produced by WJAC-TV in Johnstown and aired in February 1991. It covered five unsolved murders in the station's viewing area and provided a brief summary on each case. One of the cases was Dana Bailey's. Before the show ended, the tipster called one of the guests who had been interviewed regarding Dana's case. He wanted the information passed on to police, so the guest called and relayed the information to them. After receiving that tip, Police contacted heating contractors in Center, Clearfield, and Huntingdon counties and asked the companies to retrieve work orders that could help possibly identify suspects. But like the rest of the leads in this case, Morph, it really led nowhere. One of the things that bugs me about some of these cases we cover is when there's a very detailed and specific car, for example, that stands out and no one knows who that person is, you would think that would jump out to somebody and all these tips would be flooding in. And to see these cases where nothing comes in, it seems frustrating. No, I I agree with you on that. I mean, you know, if you said it was a, I don't know, 1990 black Toyota Camry. Okay. There's a bunch of those. Nobody's going to say it's this person. It's that person. But when you say it's a whatever year model Pontiac Trans Am and it's this color and it has flames down the side or stripes or whatever it is, that seems like it would stand out a little bit more. And I'm just using that one because we're talking about this case. I think in general, there are a lot of descriptions of alleged perpetrators that are driving what seems to me to be very specific cars that stand out, like you said. But it just, you know, these things that never lead anywhere in a, in a cold case and an unsolved case, they're so frustrating. By 1991, investigator Tom Jordan had distributed 15 to 20 files on possible suspects to the investigative unit to follow up on. And he kept pursuing any leads that came in. But again, year after year, this thing dragged on. It got colder. Then in late 2003, police received an anonymous letter offering information about the case. There were two persons named in the letter, but there was not enough information contained in it to bring the case to any type of resolution. Over the past decade, I've had the pleasure of corresponding about Dana's case with Detective Ralph Ralston of the State College Police Department. Though not the original detective investigating Dana's case, he was the first cold case detective to work on it years later when he and Chris Weaver took over the investigation in 2003. Ralston never seemed to shy away from checking out any lead that came in regarding the case. Now retired from the State College PD, Ralston has his own theories and suspects in the case, 
but can't share them due to the investigation being ongoing. The original lead investigator on Dana's case, Tom Jordan, eventually became a district judge. Jordan later called Dana Bailey's murder extremely complex and was quoted as saying, it would take a year to tell you about this case. I haven't been involved with it for a long time, but Ralston and I still talk about it. In 2015, Ralph Ralston sent evidence to Guardian Forensic Sciences, an independent lab outside of Philadelphia for processing. There's no word yet on the outcome of that testing. Just this past May 2019, a group of Penn State film majors produced and released a short documentary about Dana's case on YouTube called A Murder in Happy Valley. I was interviewed for the documentary and hope it gets people talking about the case. The group of young filmmakers earned 100% on the project and an appearance in the Rough Cut Film Festival in Philadelphia. Penn State assistant teaching professor Anita Grasbrick, who oversaw the five-week project, told Center Daily News in an email, I like that they approached the material through their own eyes, the eyes of Penn State students, and what it means to live in a relatively safe place, even called Happy Valley, that still has unsolved murder cases and a fair amount of other crimes. One final note worth mentioning regarding Dana's case. The district attorney handling her case was Ray Gricar. Gricar himself would become part of a truly baffling mystery when he vanished in Pennsylvania in 2005. His car was discovered, but no sign of Gricar himself has ever been found. So it's been 32 years since the senseless murder of Dana Bailey. The murder is still mentioned by students and faculty at Penn State. And then you talk about Dana's family, right? 32 years, her family wants, and they deserve closure in Dana's case. There is currently a $30,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Dana's killer. If you have information that can help, please contact the State College Pennsylvania Police at 814-234-234. 7150 or Center County Crime Stoppers at 87799Crime. The first two co ed cases we talked about happened on the East Coast of the United States. The third case we'll be discussing also happened on the East Coast, but this time we're talking the East Coast of Canada in the city of Quebec. We're talking about the 1978 death of 19 year old Teresa Allure. In 1978, Teresa was attending Champlain Regional College in Quebec, located in the Sherbrooke borough of Lennoxville. This college is located about 40 miles north of the Vermont-Canadian border, and since we're discussing a Canadian case, that's a distance of about 64 kilometers. Teresa had started there in September of 1978, and in November, she had been going there about eight weeks. Some of the classes Teresa was taking included physics, chemistry, and criminology. We definitely had to throw that one in. On Friday, November 3rd, Teresa was excited to be finishing up classes for the week. She woke up in her dorm room in Gillard House and ate breakfast with her friends Joanne Laurie and Caroline Greenwood. At 8 a.m., Teresa headed out to start her day, accompanied by some friends. They took a shuttle bus to the main campus in Lenoxville. The shuttle arrived at around 8.20 a.m., and her first class started at 8.30. So I think we have to point out that this 
college campuses sprawled out, sort of like a town. Some of the buildings where these students need to go back and forth to and from, they're not very close. And in some cases, might be miles away. The day unfolded uneventfully. Teresa had lunch in the Dewhurst dining room where she spoke briefly with her brother, Andrew, who was also attending Champlain College. Again, nothing was out of the ordinary during this conversation between Teresa and her brother. While at lunch, Teresa also spoke with her friend, Caroline Greenwood. Earlier that week, Caroline had invited Teresa to spend the weekend at the Greenwood home near Montreal and wanted to see if Teresa had decided to go. But Teresa declined Caroline's invite, telling her that she had too much homework to do over the weekend. Teresa left the cafeteria and went on about her day. That evening around 6 p.m., two students, Suzanne DeRome and Josie Steppenhorst, were having dinner in the Dewhurst dining room when Teresa walked up to them. She started a conversation with them. It was a casual conversation. Teresa asked the two roommates if they were going home for the weekend, and they told her that they were not. During this conversation, they talked about listening to music that night, and they asked Teresa if she would like to come. Teresa told them, sure, she would join them, and the three made plans to meet up at 9 p.m. in Suzanne's and Josie's room, which was also located at Gillard House, a few doors down from Teresa's room. After confirming their plans, they said their goodbyes and Teresa walked off. This conversation only lasted a few minutes. About 15 minutes later, at around 6.15 p.m., Josie Steppenhorst was getting situated on the shuttle bus heading back to Gillard House. It was getting dark, but as she glanced out the window, she saw Teresa leaving the Dewhurst dining hall heading towards the bus. But just then, the bus pulled away, leaving Teresa alone in the parking lot. Unfortunately for Teresa, that bus was the last scheduled shuttle picking up that night. The only other bus that might be able to pick Teresa up that night was a bus that went out to the Lion Pub, located about half a mile away, to bring pub patrons home from there. The Lion Pub was the campus pub, but that bus wasn't due to come until around 11.30 p.m. So Teresa and anyone else who might have missed the 6.15 shuttle didn't have many options. They could wait five hours and catch that campus shuttle bus, But if they were desperate enough to get home, they might decide to hitchhike. Of course, walking might be an option too. But again, it was dark and Teresa was miles from her dorm. I think we also need to talk about the weather that day. Remember, we're up in Canada. It's November. Probably not ideal walking weather. Although that day it had been clear. It was in the 50 degree range. So all in all, not too bad. But the temperature had dropped that night after the sunset. According to witnesses, Teresa was dressed in a white t-shirt, blue corduroy pants, which she had borrowed from a friend, a beige knee-length sweater, and Chinese-style slippers without socks. She was also wearing a long, dark green scarf. I think depending on how low the temperature dropped to, you know, at that point in the night, It's questionable, to me at least, as to whether Teresa is dressed to brave the elements if she were to decide to walk home, for example. I I think it's up in the air. I mean, that's, you know, you get into 30, 40 degree weather, no coat, um, 
you know, for some people that might be okay, but for a lot of people, that's that's way too cold. Back at Teresa's dorm building, Gallard House, things were very quiet. Many of the students there had gone home for the weekend. Teresa's roommate in room 235, Pamela Mitchell, had left for the weekend. A student named Greg Deacon, who was in Teresa's chemistry class, stopped by her room to see how she made out with her chemistry homework. But after knocking and not getting an answer, he left. At 9 p.m., Suzanne and Josie were in their room listening to the records, waiting for Teresa. They left their door open for her, but she never arrived. Shortly after 9 p.m., a student named Sharon Busey was walking through King's Hall, and this is the main building alongside Gillard House. She glanced over at the staircase and saw Teresa Allure standing there. From Sharon's point of view, it appeared as if she had just walked in from the outside. Sharon walked up and started talking to Teresa. She asked her why she hadn't gone away for the weekend. And Teresa told her that she was going to, but had changed her mind because she had too much homework. And, you know, this was a normal conversation, right? Nothing seemed unusual or out of the ordinary. And Sharon last saw Teresa walking up the stairs. A few minutes later, this was around 9.30 p.m., another witness named Tamara Westall saw Teresa in the King's Hall dining room. It appeared that Teresa was grabbing a late-night snack. And it's this Tamara Westall that is the last person to ever see Teresa Allure alive. So we know by 9.30 p.m. that Teresa managed to get back to the main building and to her dorm. How she got home and where she was from 6.15 to 9.15, no one knows. Between 9.30 and 10 p.m., Teresa's brother Andre was in his dorm room on the second floor of King's Hall with the lights off. His girlfriend was with him when he heard footsteps coming down the hall towards his door. He heard a knock at his door, but Andre ignored it because he wanted to be alone with his girlfriend. After a moment, he heard footsteps walk away from his door. He later would say that he thought that the person who was in the hallway and knocked on his door was a girl, possibly a sister, because the floor outside the door creaked differently if a heavier male walked along it, as opposed to a smaller woman. The next day, on Saturday, November 4th, two hunters, Stephen Matigo and Samuel Bumham, were walking in the woods not far from campus when they spotted some women's clothing. The clothing appeared to be a pair of women's slacks and a shirt, which were neatly folded and laid across a log. So they saw these clothes. They didn't pay you know, much attention to them didn't give them really a second thought, and went on about their business. For the next several days, no one saw Teresa. Remember, she was last seen on a Friday evening when many students had gone home. Monday rolled around, then Tuesday with no sign of Teresa. She missed classes, but no one really took notice. And if they did, they didn't really do anything. Finally, Teresa's brother Andre knew something was wrong and called his parents Robert and Marilyn Allure to tell them that his sister was missing. Of course, that news scared the couple, and they sprang into action. The first thing that they did was contact school officials. One campus official told Teresa's family that perhaps Teresa had run off because she had lesbian tendencies that she was having problems dealing with. Police were called in to investigate, and early on, they felt that Teresa might have taken off and was hiding, 
A search of the surrounding area proved fruitless. So I think more of the thing that really jumps out at me here is you have a school official as well as the police who were investigating this kind of early on, both saying that they thought Teresa might have just taken off. And in the case of this school official, adding the fact that she had lesbian tendencies and that she was having some problems associated with that, that she was dealing with. And maybe this is the reason that she took off. Just, it's all very strange. Yeah. I think if you're Teresa's family, that's not the way you want to start off a conversation about your missing daughter. And I don't know if it's just the time, the error, but it seems like a lot of these older cases we talk about, the police or, or certain officials are always dismissive in many instances as if the person ran ran off or ran away. And we know today it seems like they take things more seriously. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. On November 15th, the two hunters that had seen the clothes in the woods, they finally heard the news that Teresa was missing. So they contacted police to let them know what they had seen. They described the clothes they saw that day to investigators as being darkish pants and a t-shirt. The clothing closely matched what Teresa Allure was last seen wearing. The hunters also gave police directions to the spot where they had seen the clothes, but when police made their way to that location, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find these clothes that the hunters saw, and there was no explanation as to what happened to the missing clothes or how they had gotten out there to begin with. Investigators made a search of that immediate area, but it yielded no results. So there's a couple possibilities, right? One possibility was that the police had simply found the wrong spot. Even though the hunters were trying to get them to the right place, they never made it there. Now, a more sinister possibility is that someone had moved the clothes. As the weeks went by, Teresa's family continued to worry and search for the missing 19-year-old. The college continued to charge for Teresa's tuition, room, and board. Understandably, the Allure family was outraged. Here their daughter is missing, and police don't seem to take it seriously, and the university is charging them for Teresa's education. The Allure family was frightened to learn that a string of unsolved sexual assaults had been happening that fall, and that year multiple women had been found murdered in that area of Quebec. Police began to question people around the university, including students and staff, but no one could provide insights into the disappearance of Teresa Allure. One person who was never questioned by police was Stuart Peacock. And Peacock was the director of the residence where Teresa lived. He quietly resigned for what was stated were personal reasons. And this guy disappeared pretty quickly. Some students seemed to suspect that Peacock, who they called enigmatic, a little odd, might be to blame for Teresa's disappearance. At the end of that year, 1978, the King Hall residence was closed. You know, moving into this new year of 1979, all students were moved to the Gallard House dormitory. By January 1979, winter had set in, and the weather was rough and cold. It would make searches for Teresa much more difficult. All the Allure family could do was sit and wait. In April, the spring weather had arrived, and people ventured out into the woods. 
One of them was a muskrat trapper named Robert Ride. On April 13, 1979, Good Friday, Ride made his way along a creek to set some muskrat traps. Something in the water caught his attention. It looked like a mannequin. When he looked closer, he realized it wasn't a mannequin. It was a woman's body, clad only in underwear. The man left the woods to summon police. And I think it's pretty safe to say, Morph, right, from all the cases that we've done on this podcast and the other ones that we do, it's never a mannequin. People always think that something is a mannequin. It never turns out to be a mannequin. But I I think it's natural, right? I, I just think your mind doesn't want to instantly go there to the fact that this could possibly be a dead body. I actually have just a weird story, but I actually was fishing one time in a creek and I saw something that I thought was a body. And when I looked closer at it, I realized it was a mannequin. Oh, so, so it I had an, was a mannequin. <laughs> I had an experience that went the, the opposite way. And I was pretty creeped out at first until I realized that it was a mannequin. Well, I would much rather have that experience. <laughs> Me too. So when police returned, they pulled the woman's remains from the water. You know, her body was in very bad shape. It had been subjected to the water, the cold winter, the spring thaw, all of it had begun to take its toll on the body. Police immediately suspected that the remains were likely those of Teresa Allure. For one thing, the location where the body was found was only a few hundred yards from the spot where the two hunters had seen the women's clothing the day after Teresa was last seen. Police tried to contact the Allure family to let them know and to arrange for them to ID the body. But since it was the Easter holiday, the family had gone away. Instead, the police rounded up students that hadn't left for the holidays yet and checked to see if any of them knew Teresa Allure. A few did, but only casually, mainly from passing in the hall. Police tasked those students with identifying Teresa's remains. Later, police would make contact with the Allure family and a positive ID was finally made. Yeah, if I'm one of those kids at the going to college there and somebody pulls me aside and says, hey, can you come out and identify this body that's been in this creek? I think that's going to be a little unnerving for them. Well, yeah, they're probably already high anyway. Um, so, you know, any interaction with the police and, and especially one that involves going to identify a dead body as a college student, no, I'm out. Now, initially, police suspected that Teresa had taken her own life or that she had possibly died from a drug overdose. But Teresa's family immediately shot those theories down. They said, no way. Number one, would Teresa take her own life? And number two, she didn't do drugs. So eventually a toxicology report revealed exactly that. There was no alcohol in Teresa's system. There were no drugs in Teresa's system. The coroner also considered drowning as a possible cause of death, but there was no evidence to back any of that up. There were, however, unexplained bruises under Teresa's armpits. And initially, some marks on Teresa's neck made the coroner think that perhaps she had been strangled. But he quickly moved away from that idea. The coroner could not find any signs of a sexual assault, And Teresa's cause of death was marked as undetermined. Following the discovery of Teresa's body, police looked in nearby areas and discovered Teresa's scarf in a farm field, 
A week after Teresa was removed from the creek, her wallet was found by a farmer in a roadside ditch about six miles or ten kilometers away. Based on all the circumstances, the Allure family felt that Teresa was definitely murdered, but they faced opposition from the police and the medical examiner. Years passed, and Teresa's case seemed to be going nowhere. It was essentially standing still. Tired of waiting, the Allure family took matters into their own hands. In 2001, they went to police and asked them for Teresa's underwear and scarf, along with any other belongings, including her wallet. Police gave them some jewelry, and they told the family that's all there was. Apparently, the police had destroyed the evidence. And when you hear something like this, it's you're almost like blown away. Right. I mean, I mean, and this is me looking at this from the outside. If I'm the family, I can't even form a sentence to respond to the police after being told that they have destroyed almost all of the evidence and, and, and essentially the important evidence in my daughter's murder case. And the only thing I can think of is that maybe since they didn't officially consider it a murder case, they didn't feel the need to keep those things. But I don't see why they wouldn't keep them just in case, in case they change that manner of death later on. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would possibly get that if the manner of death was ruled something. But being ruled undetermined, you're not saying one way or the other. You're not saying it was murder. You're not saying it's not. So I don't know. I just, I think to have a case like this, and to destroy evidence, to me, is just unforgivable. Yeah, I think you really slammed the door on any kind of future investigation. Well, you're sure making it awful difficult. The Allure family eventually hired an investigative reporter named Patricia Pearson in 2002 to help present compelling evidence that not only was Teresa murdered, but that her death could be linked to other unsolved murders in the area. The theory was that the unsolved deaths of 10-year-old Manon Dubay, who died in March 1978, and Louise Camerand, who died in 1977, could be linked to Teresa's case. Manon Dubay went missing in January of 1978 and was found dead, fully clothed, in March 1978, in a block of ice many miles away from where she was last seen. She had to be removed carefully with a hatchet. The coroner was unable to determine a cause of death, and police believed it was possible that she might have been hit by a car, despite no physical evidence of that on the body. Louise Cameron went missing March 23, 1977, and was found two days later. She was found completely nude in the snow with a shoelace around her neck. Her clothes were laying next to her. The coroner said that she was both raped and strangled. The theory that all three of these cases were related was backed up by FBI consultant Kim Rosmo, whose specialty is geographic profiling. He's worked on many cases, including the Zodiac. Rosmo urged the police to reinvestigate all three deaths as possibly being related and suggested a serial killer or rapist or multiple killers was in the area at the time. In 1998, Kim Rosmo told Vancouver police that they should create a task force to investigate the murders of several women in that area. He thought there was a serial predator operating in the area. As a result of that task force, a serial killer named Robert Picton, 
who was nicknamed the Pig Farmer, was apprehended and admitted to killing six women. So we did cover Robert Picton on True Crime All the Time. One of the tougher cases to cover because of what he did with his victims. And it was just, it's one that really sticks with you when you find out what Robert Picton did. It remains to be seen if the deaths of Teresa Allure, Manon Dubay, and Louise Cameron were connected. Once again, in the cases of Teresa Allure and Manon Dubay, they are not even officially listed as homicides. Although the bodies were found in a three to four square mile radius in the span of less than two years. The Allure family remains convinced that Teresa was murdered. Her brother John now runs the site WhoKilledTeresa.com and started the Who Killed Teresa podcast. Their 40-year search for answers continues. So, Morph, we talked about three very different kinds of cases in this episode, three different locations, three different set of circumstances. Once again, we said it right up front, the cases are definitely not related, and really the only common denominators are that you know they were college co-eds, and that all three remain unsolved mysteries. But that's it. That's it for the college co-ed mysteries. Thanks for writing and research assistance in this episode. Goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com. And if you haven't done so yet and you love the show, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. You can leave a review if you want. It goes a long way towards helping other people find the show. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. And if you want to join the discussion group on Facebook, search for Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. So that's another episode of Criminology in the Books. But Morph and I will be back with you next Saturday night with an all-new episode. So we'll talk to you then. Take care, everyone.